Welcome wrestling fans worldwide to Knoxville and the Great Smoky Mountains for the Ron Fuller Tennessee Studcast. Six feet nine inches tall, 265 pounds. This historic podcast from one of the most respected and successful wrestlers and promoters will follow the footsteps of one of the largest and oldest wrestling families on the planet. The Tennessee Stud, Ron Fuller. Through 93 years and four generations. The Stud has arrived. Old school or new fan, this unique broadcast will educate and captivate as Ron details decades of professional wrestling's growth with truly unforgettable stories. I want those people out there at home to hear the stud. Sit back and enjoy the ride with the Tennessee stud. The Tennessee stud. You will learn that name. You will remember it. And now, the stud is here. Hey everybody, welcome in. It's David Summers hosting another Studcast with the Tennessee Stud, Rod Fuller, on the only podcast on the planet which is documenting the real story of professional wrestling. Get ready for 100 years of rich wrestling history as told by the Tennessee Stud. Now please welcome the originator of the Studcast and the man who changed the podcasting world with the Super Studcast. We step back into the ring and back into time with the Tennessee Stud, Ron Fuller. What's up, my man, Ron? Oh, man, uh, I'm great today. I hope you are too, Dave. Uh, I know you got a, we got, you got a hurricane down in your area. Uh, so <laughs> yeah, a, yeah, a little bit of that. It, it, and, and I'm talking a tremendous amount of rain that could be coming our way kind of oddly. And I'm in Southeast Alabama. It, it skirted along the coast of, of Florida where you live for a little while. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, you know, gosh, it, this time of year is really scary, man. If you, if you live in the South and anywhere along the Gulf Coast, you know, and and, and we seem to be getting plenty of them this year. So, uh, yeah, I'm hoping you're going to be all right there, man. I hope you ain't going to get flooded out. That, that, I know. 2020 is going to be one to remember. All right. So where are we headed to today, Ron? What's going on? Well, we're going to put on our owner's hat again today. And uh, we're going to discuss the upcoming Coliseum events. And uh, we're going to talk a little bit about why would I go back to the Coliseum in a bad time of the year and not back to Chilhowee Park after the fair leaves town. Then uh, that's going to be kind of a little bit of the subject in today's training, as a matter of fact. So, And then we're going to discuss the great Coliseum card of September 17th, 1976. And that card is going to be headlined by a Texas death match between me and Dory Funk Jr., uh, we're going to also dive into the big TV show six days earlier in which uh, they're going to be looking at the former NWA champion, Dory Funk. And then, then we're going to get the results of that Coliseum show from the 17th and the attendance. And uh, and we're getting ever closer each week to this big NWA World Championship match of October 10th, 1976 between me and Terry Funk. It's about a three weeks away uh, from this broadcast right here. So the learning tree is going to be very interesting this time. The questions are, what was the strangest thing you ever saw on the road coming or going to wrestle? And where did you get the idea for Southeastern Pensacola tag belts with the crowns on top? Uh, mm. Kind of two two different questions. And I think uh, fans are going to really like the answer to the strangest thing I ever saw. It's pretty unbelievable. So um, uh, I'm looking forward to it, my man. 
um, ready to jump into it, man. So, as always, it sounds like another good one, I suppose, Ron. We are starting with today's training. Is that correct? Oh yeah, yeah you got it. You got it right, my man. In today's training, the lesson that it's going to require us to put on, like I said earlier, the owner's hat, and we're going to discuss why, as an owner, I decided to go to the Coliseum, a more expensive building, in one of the worst months of the year for wrestling, with the same main event match that I had the week before in a less expensive venue in the baseball park. So I know that decision uh, probably doesn't make much sense on the surface, but when we dig down into it today, I think uh, fans are going to find out there's some gold there. So yeah, I was still very inexperienced owner of a wrestling company in 1976. Uh, no doubt about that. I'd been in business less than two years. I was lucky to have my major city that had three locations that I could choose from to run matches in. But Chilhowee Park, Knoxville, obviously had an outside amphitheater and it had that smaller indoor building. There was the Bill Meyer Baseball Stadium that we've been in for the last two weeks in the Studcast. And, uh, you know, and that was always available if the park facilities weren't available. Uh, and then there was the King of Buildings in Knoxville, the Coliseum. So the preceding promoter and owner before me, John Kazana, uh, he made a choice to, to go to Chill High Park. And that's where his home of wrestling was going to be. And he stuck with that for many years. That choice. It fit. It fit his company. It fit the type of talent that he had, and it fit his style of promotion perfectly. Uh, and if he needed to move, which was only two weeks every year in September because the park was always available, and the only time he had to move was two weeks because of the fair in September, he always went to the baseball stadium. So it also fit his company, and it kind of fit his talent, and it also fit his style of promoting. So that was not the case for my company, Southeastern Wrestling. Because those two fin venues did not, in my opinion, fit Southeastern. It didn't fit my talent. And, and it didn't fit my style of promoting uh, in those venues. So let's break this down and hear the reasons I felt the way I did. Uh, this is a perfect lesson for today's training. Because every owner of every company has his own style of doing business. And they have different goals to attain success. So let's take a closer look at John Kazana's wrestling company and then compare it to Southeastern. And now I'm not saying uh, that John didn't do a good job developing wrestling in his years of ownership in East Tennessee. I have great respect for John Kazana. He was a great guy. Uh, he, he had a wrestling brother. And, uh, you know, they were both highly involved in it. And what he accomplished, uh, he accomplished quite a bit as a wrestling promoter. His goals, talent, and style of promoting were just different than mine. Uh, you know, I'm not saying that he didn't do uh, he didn't do good business. He just saw the business in a different way than I did. Now you're probably asking yourself, uh, how were they different than mine? How how was his ideas different than mine? So let's start where I began this today's program with the buildings. Let's talk about the buildings. He chose Chilhowee Park. Now I was dead set on making the Coliseum my home as many Fridays as possible. But first, I had to build my company, and I had to get to the point where I could afford to go to the Coliseum. And that began to happen in the summer of 1976, and I immediately went to the Coliseum, talked to the office people, pay management up front to discuss uh, how much availability, how many dates could I get in the Coliseum. I was preparing for a permanent move. 
And we discussed these negotiations several weeks back in uh, in the today's training of the of one of these studcasts. So why was Chihuahua Park the perfect home for John Kazana's wrestling? Well, after all, uh, isn't wrestling all the same? And no matter what part of the country you live in. Now, if you ask that question, my answer is definitely not. I mean, every promoter ran their own company differently in all the territories across the country. From the time they started forming those companies, way back in my grandfather Roy's days, uh, they've always ran their companies differently. Chihuahua Park was perfect for John Cassana for many reasons. It fit his television program. His TV commentator, Big Jim Hess, it fit him. His talent, they, you know, had the Wright brothers. They had Whitey Caldwell. And again, I'm not being critical of John or his company, nor the Wrights. Obviously, I love Ron Wright and his brother Don Wright. It was just a different direction than where I wanted to go with my company. What John was doing with his TV show catered to those he wanted to come to his building, and it worked for him. The warp-your-head-off hold of Big Jim Hess was never going to interest a large population of that area to buy a ticket. You know, it just it just wasn't going to touch those people that I wanted to get. The tiny studio they were in on the top of the mountain, they had no set behind the commentator. That wasn't going to get anywhere for me. You know, I, I, wasn't, I wasn't interested in, in producing that type of show. The talent, the guys that were wrestling on the show, they didn't represent the best it could be. Everything he was doing had a regional flavor. Obviously, it was based around a guy that wanted to do warp your head off hole. It was based around a, it's a lot of East Tennessee talent. And it just didn't have a great appeal for the upper scale audience that was available and part of, of that city in that area. So presentation of your company or your product is critical. You should strive. I'm basically, you know, an owner, you should strive to make it fit everybody you possibly can, no matter what you're selling, whether it's wrestling, potato chips or toothpaste. I don't care. You know, I mean, uh, you need to try to to make your product appeal to as many people as you possibly can. So I wanted something totally different than what John had. I wanted something to expand the audience and better represent Southeastern. Luckily, I was able to get a larger TV station that understood what I envisioned. They saw the same thing that I did, and they helped me make it possible. The WBR studio was much larger than the one on the mountain when I took over that company. It had a massive, we had a massive three-sided set behind Les that was was nicer than anybody's in the country, maybe in the world at that point for wrestling. We had a totally different style of commentator with real wrestling knowledge, less I'm talking about, and he had the skills to convey that knowledge. And we had talent from all over the world. It was not only to get them to get better, but it would be better as long as we were on the air. It was just going to get better from guys were going to come from everywhere. Great wrestlers that would have probably never been there. I wanted to keep his fans, obviously his audience. I needed them. I didn't want to lose those people. They'd been fans for many, many years. But I also wanted to add those thousands and thousands of potential fans that were maybe never going to come to wrestling and show how it part, just weren't going to come there. So the next step to making that happen was the Coliseum. I had to be in the largest building in the city, the home of all the major events that came to town, the circus and the big concerts and everything went to the Coliseum. 
I had to make the Coliseum the home of, of Southeastern wrestling. And uh, we were about to open the door for all different types of fans to feel at home there, too. So this takes us back to the question at the beginning of the, today's training. Why, as an owner, would I decide to go in a more expensive building in one of the worst months of the year, especially with the same main event I just had the week before in a less expensive venue? The quick answer is I was determined to establish the Coliseum as the home of wrestling. We were less than four weeks from the NWA world title match in the Coliseum. We had been out of Chilhowee Park for three straight weeks at this point. And to go right back there again after being in the baseball stadium for two weeks just would have been a mistake, in my opinion. This was the perfect time for Southeastern to move forward and not backward. I already had the Coliseum booked for three of the next four shows, the last of which would be the NWA World Title Card. If I could entice some of those new fans watching TV, we had such a growing audience. If I could get those new fans to come down to the Coliseum, for three weeks in a row, I'd start to be able to make weekly fans out of them. And uh, conversely, if I could get those Chilhowee Park fans who weren't happy with the Coliseum, they thought it was too uppity and too classy right. uh, to come for three weeks in the Coliseum yeah. in a row, mm -hmm. then they would go and make them more comfortable there. So the plan was to make the Coliseum comfortable for all of the wrestling fans in the East Tennessee area, in all of the Southeastern area. So the main event might have been the same two wrestlers as it was two weeks in a row. Uh, and it might have been in the baseball stadium the week before. But this time, it's a Texas death match. And this time, a Texas death match is a lot better than just a match between Dory Jr. and I. This is a bigger, bigger event. And it was much more powerful. After all, the Funks, as far back as their father, Dory Funk Sr., they were the inventors of the Texas Death Match. They made it famous all over the country. The remainder of the card that we're going to talk about in this program was also more powerful. After the NWA title match with Terry Funk, Southeastern is going to have to return to Chai Park because a lot of the Fridays when I went to the Coliseum in the rest of the fall of 76 were taken. So we're going to have to go back to the park after the world championship match with Terry Funk simply because of the unavailability of the building. And we're going to have to turn in, during this process in that little building, hundreds, thousands of people on some nights away every Friday night. So on Sunday afternoon, January 2nd, 1977, though, Southeastern is going to begin a run of 16 straight weeks in the Coliseum. We're going to be there all winter. And uh, that would be just the beginning of it becoming wrestling's permanent home. That's pretty awesome. I know it was not your business, but what was going on in the Coliseum in the fall? I mean, were they, was it college basketball or what were they doing? They always had something in the, you know, the problem was that uh, Friday and Saturday nights were the most desirable nights. You, yeah. you, on the yeah. weekend, you're going to get a bigger crowd. Uh, they had the circus in the fall of the year. Uh, they had uh, the annual events that they they had come in. They had big balls come in on some occasions in the in the in the fall of the year, yeah. and it just happened to be that the building had that very little availability. But I had to start to, somewhere, and I had to get some regularity and start asking for dates further in advance to be able to get those dates. 
So I'd already started in the summer when we started cranking up business and went and talked to them and said, how many dates can I get? I was disappointed with the fact that after the world championship match, we're going to have to go back to Chihuahua Park. But I was very happy about the fact that once we got into January, we're not going to miss any weeks way on into the spring of the year of 1977. So we really did uh, get get the Coliseum started to be established in this three weeks that we're talking about in the next three shows between now and the world championship between Terry Funk and I. Well, that's some very educational today's training, Ron. It looks like there was a lot more to running a wrestling company than just turning on the lights when it was match time. Oh, yeah. That's a good way of putting it, Dave. For darn right. sure, you know. Yeah. <laughs> you, talked a- about, you talked about the main event for this next Friday night's card in the Coliseum. What was the entire card for the first Knoxville Coliseum show, March 12th of 76? Because you're coming back. And you're coming in there really to to get the thing cranked up. So what was the card like? Well, it was a great card. You know, we hadn't been there since March 12th of 1976. So we've basically been 26 weeks out of the Coliseum. So this was a good place for us to start, man. Uh, And you're right. This, This was the first time out of the Coliseum in 26 weeks. So the opening match was going to get things started off with a bang on this September 17th, 1976 card. There had been some heat getting started between Louis Tillette and Mike Stallings. And I didn't realize it, but I think it was legitimate. I, I don't know what the deal was. And a lot of my guys always got along. My talent never argued and we never had a problem. But Tillette had mentioned on the TV show the Saturday before this match that he'd like to slap that punk around a little bit talking about Stallings. And, uh, you know, I thought, well, wait a minute, you know, he doesn't really, well, at that point, you know, he didn't, there was no issue there at all. So, so they're about to begin a four-week program. Uh, this is their first singles match together, and uh, this is going to heat up fast. Uh, and since this was the first of three Coliseum shows, I wanted to get the kids' attention. One of the great ways to draw money back in those days was, uh, Sometimes ladies did it, but to me, midgets, midget wrestlers were the ticket to get kids to come to want to come to watch your matches. So what I did is uh, I didn't take a chance in just having uh, two midgets. I had a mixed midget tag team match. I had Lord Littlebrick, (laughs) who was the king of midgets, by golly. He trained them all. He was a bad little dude. So he was from England. And I had Diamond Doll as his partner against a little Tokyo who was a Japanese, a little Japanese midget. And he was right. teamed up with darling Dagmar. Now, I want to tell everybody a couple of little stories here about the, the, these two guys, Lord, little book and little Tokyo. And I'll tell them in the order of which they happened. Lord, little Brook one time came home with my dad. I was a freshman at Clemson. And uh, sleeping in the bedroom, and, and little Brooke comes home. They arrive back from Wesson in Savannah, Georgia, or someplace, 3 o'clock in the morning. And Dad comes in and says, you got to get out of your bed. I had a king-size bed, you know, because I was already tall. You know, I was playing basketball. And he says, you got to get out of your bed. And I was like, why? What the heck is going on? He goes, I, I got Lord Littlebrook here. <laughs> you know, and, I, and I knew Lord Littlebrook was only – He's only four feet tall, right? I mean, 
So I got to get out of the king size bed and give little Brooke my bed. And I got to go and sleep on the couch. <laughs> I was like, well, this isn't too cool. Right. So the next morning, uh, and little Brooke had a great, great sense of humor. And he was, like I said, the king of the midgets. He trained all of the, the, the male midgets, the, the, the men that were in that, that business, all of them, man. And he, he was a shooter. He was tough, really, really tough. So I, I was ribbing him next morning and breakfast was made and I got off the couch and I started down the hallway and I got to the bedroom where he was. And I looked in there and I said, hey, I hope you're comfortable in there, you little boy. You know, <laughs> I was, I was kind of, yeah, I was calling him names, you know. Yeah. And, uh, so I started on down the hallway. I didn't think about it, man. And he came running up behind me. And he got underneath my legs. He was just the right height that when he stood up, he, he had my legs on both sides of his head. And he <laughs> reached and got my thighs. And he picked me up off the floor where my feet didn't touch. And, and he had me. You know, I'm like, whoa, <laughs> put me down, little brook. No, he, he was like, no way, no way. You know, so, so he carried me all over the house. It, I bet he kept he kept me on his shoulders for 20 minutes, and I was just like I was pissed. Like, God, okay, you proved him, man. You proved you're you're strong, you know. Uh, so he had a real kick out of this. He got a real kick out of this. Uh, the other midget, the other Japan, the one from Japan uh, in 1973, when I was in Australia, he was on that same tour. He was there for the entire three months in Australia. And he and I used to go to the beach together and freak people out. You know, me at six nine and the Japanese midget walking with me. We used to go body surf, and he loved to body surf. I did too. I used to pick him up and throw him into waves so that he could body surf toward the beach. And uh, so we had a great time. So now I was in a position here in 1976. I own my own wrestling company. I'm going to use two midgets. And uh, I picked right away the two guys I wanted. I wanted Little Brook and I wanted Little Tokyo. Little Tokyo happened to be working in America, which worked out great. And I had an opportunity to bring in those guys. And we laughed about me and Tokyo about all the days on the beach when people were just freaking out and, <laughs> at the midget and the, and the giant and, uh, and the, the, the Little Brook story. And, you know, it really, for the first time as a promoter, I had the opportunity to bring in two guys that were meaningful in my life. And uh, and for them to come in and see a big crowd in the Coliseum and see me being successful, uh, it just, uh, it was a good thing. It, it was enjoyable for me. So that's our second match on this card. Uh, Lord Little Brook. Diamond Doll against a little Tokyo and Darlin Dagmar. So the third match was the Mid-American Championship match with the champion, the great Mephisto. And he's going to be taking on a guy that's out of Georgia that's beginning to get a little coverage because Barnett is, uh, is you know, starting out and getting on the, the, the channel, uh, the, the big channel there that's going to go satellite. And uh, that's called, I'm talking about Mr. Wrestling number two. Yeah. So Mid-American Championship match, Great Mephisto and Mr. Wrestling 2. That's a main eventer anywhere in the country. Fourth match, Southeastern Championship, the champion, the gladiator, Dick Steinborn, 
defending against Tor Tanaka, managed by Homer Odell. Another big match. Could have been on any card anywhere. Uh, fifth match was a special lumberjack match. That meant that we're going to have wrestlers around the ring, and they're there to throw any wrestlers that want to run from the ring or get thrown out of the ring back into the ring. And in this match, it's Jimmy Golden facing off against Don Carson. And the main event, it was the match we talked about just briefly earlier uh, in the, today's training, and it was the Texas death match, me against Dory Funk Jr. Wow, you know, pretty decent card. No doubt about it. A, a really great card. And I'm pretty sure you're going to want to tell us what was on the TV show for Saturday, September 11th, six days before this great Coliseum card. Well, you're on it today, Dave. <laughs> you're darn right. That's where we're going to go. I mean, uh, we got this card and now we got a TV. Uh, we got a great, uh, great promotional tool, the best promotional tool that any wrestling company had. Their television show. Yeah, and uh, yeah. I want to put together a great one that's really going to make this first Coliseum show in in, a, in six months really cook. After Les ran down the card, we began this wrestling show. Uh, and, you know, we're going to be uh, live on this TV. Uh, today, we're going to have Dory Funk Jr. live on this program. He's not only going to be the on there talking, he's actually going to wrestle live on television for Southeastern, the first time ever that had ever happened for Southeastern. And he didn't do a lot of television wrestling matches, that's for sure. So this time it was something totally different. This steel shot that we're going to use for this opening was really, really, it had gotten to be a big part of our show. People were tuning in early because they didn't want to miss that first shot when they back away those cameras from Les and he's told what's going to happen. And you get that big screen back there that shows that shows something awesome that we had a great shot this time too and it was from the friday before when they had that horrible rainstorm that started just about the time the main event started between me and dory jr and uh, when they backed off the cameras this time they got a tremendous shot the crowd the clouds had opened up and it rained like cats and dogs for that entire 45 minute match so I'd asked the cameraman prior to the rain starting to go out on second base and shoot the match from second base because you could get the grandstand in the background. You get the ringsiders in the picture. Uh, but then the rain came and, and, you know, I didn't get to talk to him after that. So he went out there anyway <laughs> and he had assistant and he had an umbrella over as best they could during this huge downpour. And he shot the match from there. So. Les and I looked at the video before we picked the shot that we wanted to open up with, and we picked this still shot that it didn't show any ringsiders in. And and uh, the reason was they'd already left the infield because when that rain began to come down, uh, they wanted to head for the grandstand because it was covered and it wasn't right, covered yeah. out there on the baseball diamond. Yeah. You know, like poor baseball players sometimes have to play in a little bit of rain. It was a fantastic shot. It, it showed me I had Dory Funk uh, up in the air. I was about to slam it. The ring had six inches of water in it. It was like, well, you know, once I slam him, the water just goes flying everywhere. <laughs> and the rain was coming down so hard, you couldn't hardly see the ring. In this shot, the, you couldn't tell, you couldn't hardly see the ring, and much less the grandstand is in the background. It right. was just raining like crazy. 
So it's one of those pictures like worth a thousand words, as the old saying go. And uh, Junior and I were both bleeding so badly that the rain, you know, <laughs> uh, surprisingly, it couldn't even wash off. We were bleeding so badly that the, the, you could see the blood on our faces in this still shot. So, so it's you it's you and Dory Jr. and a referee, and the ringside has basically vacated that area because of the torrential downpour, and they move back up under the grandstand. So it's basically just three of you in this torrential downpour. That's it. Wow. You know, baseball lights on the stadium are on, you know, the, even the outfield lights because you got to have enough light for everybody to see the ring. And there you've got three people, and everybody else is all hunkered down over there in the big grandstand. Right. So, hell of a shot to open up with. You know, I, I really liked it. And, uh, you know, and I think the fans probably really did too. And those people that weren't there and didn't know what kind of night it was, you told them everything. That, that first shot, they were like, wow, look at how hard it's raining. My gosh. So, Dory Jr., he, jo- he, he joins Les to set. And, uh, and he's got a pretty big patch over his right eye because we'd, 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 been, uh, we'd been bleeding the night before. The two of them watched that last five minutes of this remarkable video footage. Uh, referee Mac McMurray got knocked down several times in the last five minutes before he finally just rang the bell. And he said, that's it. There's not going to be a winner here. Nobody's going to. He wasn't going to survive the match if he hadn't just had <laughs> rung the bell. He said, I got to stop this or I'm going to get hurt. Right. So, you know, Dory Jr., he rolled out of the ring and uh, and it showed him. He rolled out on the side where the camera was. and he. And he lost his footing and he fell face first into the mud, into the muddy clay on the infield. Wow. And then he got up and he was he was red from head to toe. And that was shot was in the camera. I mean, it, it was it was a nasty night and it was a nasty thing to go through as a wrestler. You know, your boots are all soaking wet and it's really dangerous to wrestle in a slippery ring. It's really, mm-hmm. really tough. Yeah. So let's ask Junior. He's. If he'd ever wrestled in conditions worse than that anywhere in the world, it was a perfect question for a world champion because they wrestle all over the world and in all types of stadiums. So, Junior, you remember last week, Junior got the fans so hot. He started talking about having being hillbillies and that uh, Texans were tougher than Tennesseans. And, and uh, he had already had some heat. So, boy, he went right there again, right as soon as Les said that. You know, he said it was his first trip, you know, last week when he came, came in here, he said it was my first trip. And, uh, you know, when I got in here, this is this is my first trip here. And he goes, I, I was just amazed. I was appalled. I think he used the word appalled at the squalor and the poverty and the <laughs> ignorance of all these hillbillies, man. When I got off the plane, you know. <laughs> You know, he was like, he tore into it, man. And, you know, just like he did the week before, you know, and he said something about this part of the country was was much worse than he had anticipated. And he, and he couldn't wait to get back on the plane and go home to the great state of Texas, my God. <laughs> uh, he even said, you know, uh, you know, <laughs> that he was upset that the NWA officials made him come here and wrestle on this television. In front of all these hillbillies. You know, then he got into the baseball stadium, and, you know, where, where we where we had just wrestled the night before. And he said, 
you know, it was rat infested. He goes, dressing <laughs> room, and the rats were running around. And then he goes, uh, you know, he said, it's probably like the homes of all those people. And he pointed at the studio <laughs> audience. I bet y'all got rats all over y'all's houses, too. Oh, <laughs> oh. <laughs> wow. <laughs> he, had it, he had it going, man. <laughs> and boy, they were mad. They started booing. I mean, that's his first sentence. By the time he got to the rat story, <laughs> they were they were really into it. So he ended it with the fact, you know, like I said, he, that the NWA had ordered him to come here and wrestle. They made him do it, or he wouldn't have been here. He would have, he said, I think he said, I would have got myself a car and drove back to Texas if I could have to get out of here last <laughs> night. So, so he left the set and he went into the ring and he opened up the show with a great match, man. And he was in the ring with a pretty darn good baby face. The old up and coming young Tommy Rich, they had a tremendous ten minute match, and Dory Man showed the pure wrestling skills that made him world champion. He won in the middle of the ring. He won with his family's famous finishing hold, the spinning toe hold. And the southeastern fans had just seen a world class wrestler. Uh, my God, that uh, they had never seen it like so before. And I was real proud just to have him wrestle on tv have him to be there that day um he goes back to the set after his match and it's after commercial break and uh, now he can speak more to me and have he started out by apologizing to terry because he didn't get the job done you know mm -hmm. terry I, I i know i know you're going to hear about this you know i just want to tell you out right here you know i didn't beat him last night gosh i know and then you know and i, I feel bad about it but, you know, he says, I, I definitely promise you, Terry, that I'm going to get him and I'm going to come back here to this rat hole <laughs> and I'm going to get, get him in a Texas death match. So uh, he admitted that, uh, you know, and during the same little interview that I was a lot better than I was two years ago. The last time he wrestled me he said that guys really improved a whole lot. He says a lot tougher than he was. Um, but he ended up by saying uh, no Tennessean is ever going to beat this Texan, and especially in a Texas death match. Mm. So he made an even bigger impression this week than he did last week with that little interview that the fans went so crazy about. And, the, you know, for a guy that this is the first time they've really ever seen him, boy, he really had some heat, man. And he, he set things up great for me later in the show. So the second TV match was with the great Mephisto. And uh, he was, to pardon the pun, really hot by this time, you know. He tortured another young baby face, as he always did on television. And he beat him with his camel clutch, which he was really, really good at. And it was a very painful hold. Uh, he beat a lot of guys, and it wasn't just guys wrestling on TV. So he came to the set after the match, and Louis Tillette followed in there with him. Those two guys were seen to be together all the time. And uh, Les and the two of them watched this electrifying second burning of Bob Armstrong that happened the night before. I mean, you know, we didn't open with the fireball this time. We opened up with that great shot of the rain and the storm going on and wrestling in the storm. But we did show that match. We did have that tape. And it didn't matter how many times you saw one of these fireballs that, that Mephisto threw. It was always an amazing sight. It was like, wow. And the TV studio reacted to it 
watching it this time, just like they did the first time they ever saw it. It was like they were all just, whoa, oh, geez. You know, flames went all around Bob's head. It was it was really, really it looked just horrible. So and Louie interrupts in the, to make a little short comment about the match, about the young punk Stallings. He's he just focused on Stallings here and how he was looking forward to it. He, now he's going to get a chance to slap him around and I only have to wait a few more days. And so Mephisto, he finished it up by bringing up his next title events against Wrestling 2. It was going to be the following Friday night in the Coliseum. And uh, it was the one of the first appearances of my really good friend, Johnny Walker, in Knoxville in years. He hadn't been there in years. He had never been there as Mr. Wrestling 2. Uh, this was his first time. So Mephisto asked Louis Tillet at the end of this interview if Louis had ever seen an infidel wearing a mask and that mask being on fire. <laughs> I was like, wait a minute. (laughs) You know, and the mere thought of that, I think for a second, the crowd just kind of sat there and then they all kind of said, whoa, and they all kind of, they all kind of showed a little panic, like, oh, so Louis laughed about it. He said something about if the mask catches on fire, imagine how much damage it's going to cause to somebody uh, before they can put out the mask, you know. (laughs) I mean, when you got a fire around your head and there's no mask, but if the mask were to catch a fire, it, it's a whole different ball game at this point. So it was very serious heat just to mention of something like that, especially since Mephisto had done Bob Armstrong. He had done this twice to Bob Armstrong and once to Ron Wright already. So Jimmy Golden, Mike Stallings, they joined less after the commercial break, after this second match. And they talked about their match the night before against Tanaka and Carson. Jimmy pointed out that Carson spent more time on the floor during the match than he did in the ring. And in the floor, he, by the floor, he's talking about the, the baseball stadium floor, you know, but he spent a lot of time out of the ring. So the following Friday, that wasn't going to happen because the ring's going to be surrounded by lumberjacks. That's guys ready to toss whoever gets thrown out back into the ring. And uh, it's going to give Jimmy a chance to finish Carson off without him running and getting away. So Stalling answers to let challenge just real briefly and uh, about next Friday. And he stated to everybody that uh, we're going to see who's going to get slapped around come next Friday. You know, we'll, we'll see what happens to you to let. No doubt. Fascinating TV so far, Ron. I think this is a good spot for us to take a break. We'll come back with more on this studcast. Don't go anywhere. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Every Super Studcast is special, but Super Studcast number 33 is like no other. First of all, it is a fantastic tribute to one of the most popular wrestlers in the history of the sport, the iconic bullet Bob Armstrong. It's almost five hours in length, bringing you the heartfelt comments of no less than eight of the greatest stars of all time about how they felt about the man they loved and respected. It also contains almost one hour of the never heard before last interview ever done with Bob Armstrong. 
at tmstud.com or patreon.com slash studcast. This Super Studcast is truly historic and will remain in the memory of all who hear it forever. Be the first to experience the love and respect from former NWA world champion Terry Funk, brother of another former NWA champion Jerry Briscoe, maybe wrestling's greatest manager ever, Jim Cornette, Hall of Famer Stan Hansen, Kevin Sullivan, Dutch Mantel, Jody the Assassin Hamilton, and Southeastern Pensacola commentator and one of Bob's best friends, Charlie Platt. Get this one-of-a-kind podcast now at tnstud.com or patreon.com slash studcast. Almost five hours for only $2.99. This time, the stud is truly making history with maybe the best super studcast ever. We are back on another studcast at tnstud.com or patreon.com slash studcast. You can always go back and you can listen to every one of the studcast or super studcast if you've missed any of them, and there are a ton, plenty of stuff in the stud store as well at tnstud.com. All right, stud, if I'm correct, this should be the personality profile time on the show. So who is on the personality profile? Well, you're locked in today, Dave. I'm telling you, man. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, you're truly on it today. Uh, So uh, Dory Jr., you know, uh, had his say in the early part of the show. Uh, and so this was yours truly. It was me. It was it was going to be me on the profile today uh, because of the importance of the match that was upcoming in the Coliseum. Uh, me against Dory Jr. Texas Death Match. If I lost, I was not going to get the shot at Terry. And so uh, you know, it just seemed uh, less than I both agreed that I should do the profile on that day. And you know, it gave me a chance to stand up for the people of my part of the country since the. Junior had tur- cut him down so badly, and uh, you know <laughs> he had made such fun of him. So I told a short story about an old Texan, uh, and he wasn't a very smart guy. That my brother and I had experienced when we made a trip with my granddad to Texas back when we were about ten years old or somewhere around that age. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was a good story. It- <laughs> It made Texans look so stupid, and the crowd loved it. I mean, they were like, oh, they just were cracking up. It was so good. It was so good that Dory Jr. Uh, wasn't supposed to. He got pissed off back there watching it on the monitor, and he came out of the dressing room, and he came to the set. He was like, he was like he was, it was a shoot. He was, he was mad. He was like, hey, you can't talk about Texans like that. <laughs> The boys in the dressing room, I guess, when he left the dressing room, they followed him because they could tell he was right. mad. He was like, uh, no telling what he was saying back there when he was when I was telling this story. But when he left the dressing room and came out there, they knew, hey, what? They ain't supposed to be doing that. So they came, and then a couple of baby faces, Jimmy and Mike Stallings, came, and and they had to grab him, and drag him out. So it was a pretty good personality profile. Wasn't it what we expected was going to happen, but it was even better because because Junior got incensed by by my by Texas story. So uh, it was maybe one of the best personality profiles that we'd ever done, as a matter of fact. So rest of the show was all the gladiator, Tor Tanaka, Don Carson, and and uh, really down and out at this point. Home Rodell, he's he spent two or three weeks now just. In the background, man, and yeah, but Homer was about to shake things up, man, and Tanaka as well, man. This 
So surprises were in store for the fans concerning these two guys, and the surprises were going to happen actually uh, the next Friday night. It's pretty amazing how this this whole thing with the general, you've been kind of teasing all along, and week to week he's in a little more trouble, a little more trouble, and it hasn't come to a head yet. And so that's we know that's around the corner. All right, can you give us the results of the Coliseum that night, September 17th of 76? Absolutely. Uh, right. Great night for Southeastern fans. It really was a great night. I mean, wow. Tremendous. So this night got started off right from the first match with the bang, man. In the first match, Mike Stallings and Louis Tillette. And, uh, you know, they got, and I, I went and watched some of this and they got into a little bit of a shoot. I mean, they, they were, they were really pissed at each other and the ref stopped the match. He disqualified both of them around the 10 minute mark. And the fans, uh, they were as crazy as the, the two of those guys. I mean, Fans really got into it. It was so good when I watched it that I decided I'm going to move them up on next week's card. And I moved them up to the next to the last match, and I put them in the Texas death match with each other. I said, well, if these guys are going to fight, let's, let's, let's let them have a good one. You know, let's get some money out of it. It was one of the best starts of, of a night of wrestling I can remember. I mean, it was amazing. The fans really got into it. It was really a good start. And it could have been because we were in the Coliseum and everyone in the dressing room and the crowd out there in the building, they were just more excited about it. They weren't in the rain for one thing like they were the week before. They're in this big, beautiful building and everybody, the dressing room's alive, the crowd's alive and excited. You could just tell this night's going to be big. The midget mixed tag on the second match, it kept the crowd going. I mean. These four midgets had a tremendous match, you know, and uh, <laughs> they must have watched a little bit of the Stallings and Louis match, and they got inspired too. And boy, they went out there and tore the house down. They had fans, and you know, when you had those midgets, you got these kids that watch the TV, and as soon as they see this is on the card, you're going to get a lot of families in your building that night that aren't normally come. Right. And uh, these these midgets went out there and just, I mean, they entertained. It was a phenomenal, phenomenal little match. Third match of the night, Mid-American Championship with the champion Mephisto against Mr. Wrestling 2. And this match was great, too. It just kept the excitement going. Mephisto got a win in the middle, but Wrestling 2 really impressed that crowd. You could tell that if he was there regularly, he would have gotten over, no doubt. So it began to seem like the enthusiasm uh, so far in that that night was because we were in this big building and there was this big crowd there. And that's probably another good reason for not taking this match back to Chilhowee Park. Like I talked about in the today's training, I made the decision. I don't want to go backward to Chilhowee Park. I want to go forward to the Coliseum. Yeah. And, you know, it just makes big buildings sometimes create big nights and big events. I have wrestled in a lot of big buildings from Madison Square Garden uh, uh, and buildings all over the world, the Tokyo Dome. I mean, uh, just all kinds of big places. And uh, when you're in a big building, it just it makes everything bigger and it makes your crowd more excited, too. Fourth match of the night, Southeastern Championship match between the Gladiator, Dick Steinborn 
and tore Tanaka managed by General Homer Odell. And this one took the night to another level. I mean, well, already we'd had three great matches, but this one, wow, roof comes off. The end of this match was almost exactly the same thing that had happened the last time a month earlier. That was the last time that Steinborn, the gladiator, had wrestled against Tanaka, and it was on August the 20th in Chilhai Park, back a month ago. And the end of this match, the gladiator collides with the referee, and both of them go down. Homer went around to the announcer table, just like he had a month earlier. He took the southeastern belt away from the announcer. He jumped upon the apron. Tanaka was karate chopping the gladiator, who was still on the mat. The referee was down face first. And uh, Homer, I guess, has to, tells, uh, you know, Tanaka to full Nelson, bring him over here, bring him to me. And so Homer, full Nelson's a gladiator, and he pushes him over there and walks him over there, and the gladiator's fighting it. Homer raised that big old belt, that, old, that, that big metal belt over his head, and he started to smash it into the gladiator, and the gladiator ducked. And guess what? He hit Tanaka again. <laughs> <laughs> with that big belt. <laughs> and the crowd goes wild. Oh, boy. <laughs> I mean, the Tanaka went down, and boy, the gladiator just fell on top of him. The referee did, was about to get up, and he just scrawled over there, counted Tanaka out. And, uh, and, and the gladiator grabbed his belt, and he left the ring. And <laughs> guess who was left? It was uh-huh. just Tanaka and poor old Homer. Tanaka's bloody. He's bleeding, and I was like, Oh, the crowd now, they're just out. They're just wow. <laughs> so uh, Homer's inside the ring, and he just drops down. He's just begging and apologizing, and I'm so sorry. You can't hear what he's being said, but you can get the idea of what's going on. Mm-hmm. And Tanaka this time, instead of kind of backing off, he just bowed up. You could see his body just puff all up there. And then Homer really turned on the begging, and the crowd got on their feet. It was crazy in that building. And it was finally time for Tanaka to explode on Homer. And everybody in the building seemed to know it. This is it. It's going to happen. And you couldn't hear yourself think it was so loud in there. I mean, and Tanaka took his time. He just he he just uh, made it horrible for Homer, you know, because he held off for so long. And the longer he, the longer he held off, the louder the crowd got. And then obviously it happened. Tanaka started on Homer. That building went berserk. Tanaka opened Homer up. And, and now he had a bloody Homer. And he's crawling and begging for Tanaka to stop. But uh, Tanaka wasn't going to stop. Tanaka left him laying. He left Homer laying. And he also left a building that was going crazy for him. And I mean, they were cheering Tanaka. Wow like crazy when he went to the dressing room. Yeah. Uh, we had to send a stretcher out there to bring Homer into the dressing room. And the building was still buzzing after about, we had a 10-minute intermission. And uh, when the next match started, the building was still kind of buzzing about what to happen. Boy, gosh, Tanaka got him. We knew it was going to happen. So I didn't realize up until that night just how much heat Homer had. And I, and I watched this match from the back of the Coliseum. And I even watched them carry him out. And and the crowd never stopped celebrating. Even when they were stretching him out, they were still mad. They were still <laughs> on him and screaming. It was like, wow, this guy's got tremendous heat. So 
Fifth match of the night was a lumberjack match with the wrestlers around the ring to keep Jimmy Golden and Don Carson inside. And this match was another wild one. On the end of this one, Golden had Carson going, and Carson dumped Jimmy out on the floor where Louis Tillette was. Now, you got about eight guys out there around the ring, and Louis was one of them. And so there were, you know, and, and all of them uh, got in a little bit of a scuffle there around uh, Jimmy and Louie because Louie grabbed Jimmy rather than throwing him in. He reached down and put his head between his legs, and he piledrived Jimmy on the concrete. And uh, Stallings is one of those guys out there, Jimmy's good buddy, and he sees that, and, boy, he's already mad at uh, Tillett. So, boy, they got into it right out there. They're fighting like hell. Now there's a fight going on between two guys on the floor, and and uh, this Mephisto comes over. He grabs Jimmy, and he shoots him back up in the ring, and Carson just covers him. Referee counts him out. Match is over. But Stallings and Tillette, they didn't stop. They just kept fighting. And uh, then a couple of the other lumberjacks got into it. And before it was over, it was like pandemonium out there. Everybody's fighting, and uh, Carson's running for the dressing room because he won. He's glad to get out of there. And it was just a fantastic, fantastic night up to this point. Wow. Listen, it sounds like these two matches back-to-back were big enough for a main event. And you really have not even gotten to the final match for the the big match for the night yet. Yep. Yep. Uh, You know, it it was – it was one of those nights that just uh, things happen that you never expect. And it just, it's much bigger and better than you thought it could be. You know, it was one of those nights, you know, when, uh, when real wrestling fans are made, you know, made out of those people that just think I'm a wrestling fan. And when they go through a night like that and they see those mm-hmm. kind of matches, yeah. they become real bona fide wrestling fans. They're never going to miss a match. In any venue, they could have left after either of those last two matches and been satisfied for the evening and felt like they got their money's worth, but you gave them a little bit more. So this Texas death match between Funk and you is ready. So what happens there? Well, you know, it's a Texas death match. And uh, we went 45 minutes the, the week before, and it wasn't a Texas death match. So this one was... It was probably an hour. It might have been even more than an hour. It probably had 15 pinfalls during it. And uh, after each pinfall in a Texas death match, there's a 30-second rest period. And then the the uh, bell rings, and the, the referee counts a guy to 10. If he can't get on his feet, he loses the match. Mm-hmm. Uh, this went on. The match just went on and on and on. And uh, several times during this match, he went for a spinning toho. I, that's his best move. And uh, and I went for my fuller leg lock several times. Now, Junior, Junior's a great wrestler. You, you weren't going to get that very easily on him, man. And, uh, and I was, uh, I was uh, good enough that I, I knew how to get out of his, out of his spinning toehold or to avoid it. Once he got it on you, you're in trouble, and you're probably right. not going to get out of it. Yeah. But anyway, the match kind of uh, – it hinged on those two moves. He got the, if he gets his spinning toe hold, I'm done. If I get my full little leg lock, he's done. The last fall, I finally hooked my hold on him, man. And he gave up. And he, he didn't fight it very long, you know, but he fought it longer than I thought he would. I thought he would give up instantly. He'd be able to get up after the 30-second rest period. I believe if he had given up earlier, he would have. 
But after the 30-second rest period, uh, he couldn't get back to his feet before the 10 count. And I won the Texas death match against Dory Fong Jr., which is <laughs> that's quite a quite a feat, man. Uh, yeah, he yeah, beat, yeah. beat one of those Texans, one of those three Texans at their own game, basically. Yeah. So the crowd was about as exhausted as both me and Jr. were. I mean, but they celebrated the win, man. They were really, really happy to see me win. You know, by now they're really into the fact that if I lose, uh, I'm not going to get that title shot. So it was proof to me the Fuller leg lock uh, was going to be enough to win the world championship on October the 10th. If I could put my toe hold, my leg lock on him, then uh, I felt like I had an excellent chance to be the world champ. All right. And remind us again, how many weeks out are you from that October 10th, that big night? We're three weeks. We're three, three weeks. weeks from this match. Yeah. We just wow. talked about and this was, three this weeks. Yeah, you had the midgets, you had the lumberjack match. So, I mean, you had a huge night for Southeastern Wrestling. What was attendance like that night? Tennis was about 4,000 people, just a little slightly over 4,000. But that was by far the biggest crowd yet that we'd ever had in the Coliseum. And the, and the great thing about it was every fan that, that went home from there that night, they went home talking about what the heck they saw, man. And they were darn sure going to come back. You know, I. I could guarantee you 98% of the audience that was there that night were going to be there the following Friday night when we come back to the Coliseum. You mentioned a few weeks ago that you like to keep a card at five to six matches. Was there a time period? How long was that evening? Was it a 90-minute, a two-hour show? How long was that 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 show? Well, the, because the, we went so long in the Texas death match, it probably was about a two and a half hour show. Wow. Uh, yeah. I like to try to keep the shows in there ran the two two hour range. Yeah. But this one was long. But when you got the Texas death match, you you can fans understand that this ain't gonna get finish early and usually it doesn't anyway. Yeah. And uh, you know, and then boy, when you have that kind of night and those kind of matches, they would have been happy to stay there three and a half hours, you know. They yeah. They, the fans were really, really into it, loving it. Well, again, you kept them under the edge of their chair on their feet all night long. All right, Ron, I think it's a good time for us to get that cold drink. We'll sit under the learning tree. You can call me Grasshopper if you want to. So who gave <laughs> us the question for the learning tree this time, and what was it once again? Well, our question today comes from a gentleman named John Edwards. And he asked, what is the strangest thing you have ever seen on the road coming or going to wrestle? And where did you get the design idea for the Southeastern tag belts? Uh, now he's talking about uh, the ones in the Pensacola end of the territory with the crowns on top. So two good questions. Uh, I wanted to answer the second one first about the belts first, because the first one, I, the first one I really like. I'm going to enjoy telling the story. But uh, let's answer that first one. And the first one was, where did I get the idea for the Southeastern tag belts that had, they looked like crowns on top of the belt, the main plate of the belt. So I got that idea from my father, oddly enough. And uh, his first territory was called Gulf Coast Wrestling. It was based out of Mobile rather than Pensacola, like I did when I took it over and went down there. I wanted to stay in that nice beach town. I wanted to have my boys be able mm -hmm. to go to that beautiful beach in Pensacola rather yeah. than the yeah. uh, 
Mobile had the dirty water kind of, and Pensacola had a beautiful beach. So uh, he operated in the cities all along the Gulf Coast, from Tallahassee all the way over to New Orleans. And he he was there in the early 1950s. I was a kid. I kind of grew up, uh, you know, uh, I went to first grade in Mobile, Alabama. And, you know, I saw a lot of these matches. I saw a lot of the televisions. I saw a lot of things as an early boy uh, growing up. And uh, my dad was a hell of a promoter, and he was a smart owner. He he knew how to run wrestling. He was the first to get on TV stations all along the Gulf Coast. If, if you think about it back, we're talking about the early 50s. Television is just coming about, really, you know. Yeah. yeah. They're, you know, TV stations are just getting organized and just building buildings and trying to find programs to put on there. And he went around the Gulf Coast cities and he got on all these television stations. So he was extremely successful as a young man and an owner. And he started in his early 30s. And, you know, I started a little earlier than he did. But in his early 30s, he had his own territory. He drew almost 40,000 fans in one match in Mobile, Alabama's Lad Stadium in 1958. Night, I got to stop you right there. 1958 and 40 thousand fans on the opener i occasionally make reference to wrestlemania type events before the name wrestlemania had ever been uttered that's one example right there Forty thousand. that had to be some kind of record for a wrestling match in its day 1958 oh it, it was it was huge it was huge now you know they had some of the places chicago i think chicago has been in the 60s so they were in baseball stadiums uh, this is a football stadium that uh, Lad Stadium was, um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but uh, you know there there had been bigger bigger ones in in Chicago and wow. and Monster cities. Wow. But yeah. for forty thousand in Mobile, Alabama, they probably yeah. only had a population of two hundred fifty thousand. Yeah. So they had yeah. one out of every five people in the cities <laughs> right. in, that, in that football stadium. That's incredible. So yeah, it is an incredible figure, man. It's it's truly amazing. My dad's first Gulf Coast Championship belt. He designed it himself. It had a center plate, and uh, and on the top of the center plate was these triangular-shaped crowns that protruded above the main plate as if it was to look like a crown. And, uh, you know, like the crown if you would put one on it. The most memorable part of that belt was that the tip of each one of the five crowns that, that came off the top of it, he had a jeweler insert real diamonds into the tips of those the and there and half carrots, all the half carrot are bigger in each one of the tops of that those crowns. Wow, it was a fantastic, beautiful belt. And then when they had it on TV or when they got into a place where the lights reflected off of it, those diamonds just really stood out. It was crazy, beautiful, beautiful belt. So it was it was an it's beautiful enough that I never forgot the way that belt looked. So let's fast forward 20 years. I buy that same Gulf Coast territory from the Fields brothers, who are part of my Welch family. Uh, their championship belts are old, and they needed to be replaced. So my first Southeastern Pensacola tag team belts were replicas of my father's Gulf Coast single championship belt. Uh, those tag belts, the ones that I made, and never had real stones in the top of them. Because wrestlers didn't take good care of their belts by the 1980s. It was a different mm-hmm. deal than in the 1950s. And, and uh, those type of expensive stones wouldn't have lasted very long. And 
in a, in a belt. I can tell you that. I don't know if the fans, I don't know if they would have dropped the belt and then lost the stone, or if some of the guys that had won the belt would probably pop the stones out and take, <laughs> take right. You know, so uh, it wasn't a good thing to, to, <laughs> to have that kind of belt with stones in it that day. But that's the answer to the first part of your question, Mr. Edwards. And the second part of your question uh, about the strangest thing that I ever saw coming or going to wrestle. Um, and this one, by golly, it's easy for me, as a matter of fact. Uh, I can even give you the night it happened because it was the first time. I, several things happened in this day that was the first time for me. This day is the first time I ever saw Harley race in my life. And the first time I ever got to see him, I wrestled against him. And I got to know him real well that night. <laughs> but I never got to even say hello. We were in separate dressing rooms. I'd never seen him before until I went to the ring, what Harley Race even looked like. Uh, wow. I was only 25 years old. I wrestled against him uh, that night. When I wrestled him, I had only had one other NWA World Championship match before this match with Harley. Uh, the match this night with Harley, it's in the Miami Beach Convention Hall Arena. It's in the same building. It's in the same ring that Muhammad Ali beat Sonny Liston for the first World Heavyweight Boxing Championship. Holy cow. Wow. And it's historic. It's an historic building and an historic ring. It was like, wow. You know, and it's World Championship match, me versus Harley Race. I'm 25 years old. So to tell the story properly, I kind of need to tell about the whole day that I had that day. Uh, I got up and, you know, back in those days, I was young and we used to go and and, then Tuesday I'd wrestle in Tampa and I would spend the night. I lived in West Palm Beach. I would stay over in Tampa. I would wrestle on TV and then I would fly back to West Palm and usually wrestle in Miami on Wednesday night. When we did interviews for the entire territory, you forget who you're wrestling. You forget what your interviews were about because you were doing so many of them usually. There was a lot of markets who were getting this television program back in that day. So I didn't remember who I was wrestling, who I was booked against, or I wouldn't have done what I did that day. I got up. I went to the gym real early. I had a tremendous workout. Uh, I'd have kept some of that. I'd have saved some of that if, if I'd have realized who I was going to be in the ring with that night. I also, I went to the beach some, and then and I walked. I like to walk. There was a beautiful beach there in West Palm, uh, Jupiter. And I walked for probably four miles on the beach that day after working out. And mm. then I drive to Miami that night, and I get in the dressing room, and I ask the referee, I said, uh, who am I wrestling? And he goes, uh, you're wrestling Harley Race. Wow. And I'd heard of Harley, but I'd never seen him wrestle. I didn't know anything about him. And I was like, oh, boy. Well, (laughs) I don't know about this. Uh, I'm curious about how this will go. Anyway, they come and tell me, you know, that Harley is going to beat me with a, the way the referee described it, he says, uh, he says, Ron, uh, when he gets ready to go home, he's going to suplex you and he's going to climb up on the top rope and he's going to dive off head first and, and headbutt you in the side of the head with his head. 
Oh, that's all. Okay. Yeah. 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 I, and I was like, and I was like, uh, what was that again? <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I missed it. Maybe or something uh, I missed. Right. You know? So yeah. anyway, uh, we have a tremendous match. We go a long time. God, man, Harley was great. He never ran out of gas and I ran out of gas. I'm young. I'm excited. I'm too excited when I go in the <laughs> ring. And that, that takes a lot of energy out of you. You waste a lot of good energy. And so I'm I'm just, I'm out of it. By the time we get to the suplex and he climbs to the top rope and I watch him and I watch him going up the top rope and I see him stand up and he, and he used to put his feet on the ropes on both sides of it and he would arch his back and stand straight up. And then he would put his arms down by his side and then when he came off that top rope, there was no—I could see nothing coming from my head but his head, like a missile, <laughs> like a missile, just like a missile. I mean, right. oh my God, you know, <laughs> and, uh, and you know, you, you don't want to move, you can't move. And, and listen, I—I I know you were a big boy then, but he's this is a big man we're talking about. <laughs> oh yeah, he's about two hundred and fifty pounds, man, and yeah, he yeah. he comes like a torpedo, man, and right yeah. wham side of my head, and it, it it knocked me out for just a second. I mean, I went black, and I like uh, wow, geez, and then I shook my head a little bit, and I was woozy for <laughs> when I left the ring. I, I was, I was, I think probably somebody had to put their arm, their hand under my, under my armpit and kind of steady me a little bit to get back to the dressing room. And, and, I, and when I took the shower, I don't remember taking a shower, wow. but I'm sure I did. You know, it's one of those that I'm pretty sure I had a little bit of a concussion. So yeah. it's a rainy night. I mean, it's a horrible rainy night that night. Uh, like you get sometimes in South Florida and the Miami area. And I got to drive back to West Palm. It's about an hour drive. And I get in my car and then I start driving and I'm a little, you know, oh my, my, my head's kind of, you know, like, uh, and I get about halfway up to West Palm and it's just raining. I mean, like cats and dogs are just horrible. And, and I, I have a blowout. On my left front tire, uh, and oh, I, had, I had a. I was lucky then. I had gotten to where I had my first Cadillac. I bought a used Cadillac. I couldn't afford a new one, but I had a used Cadillac, and I had a blowout left front tire. So, and I, but I couldn't find a place to pull off. There was a barricade. You know how they, the uh, you have the big aluminum barricades that run along the side of the road. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I had to pull as close as I could to one of those barricades. And then I, I was right on the edge of the road. I mean, it was like, how am I going to change? I didn't think I had enough room to change my tire. So it's raining like crazy. My head is still kind of ringing like, wow, man, you know. Uh, so I get out and, and within two, three, three minutes, my body is totally soaked. I mean, my, I'm just drenched. And I... I, I take the lugs off my tire. I jack my jacker up. I take the lugs off my tire. I take the bad tire back and I put it back there. And uh, when I'm taking the lugs off the tire, I have to sit down on the road. I, I'm so unsteady still that I that I I'm not my head ain't right. And I sit down on my butt on the road 
and the cars were so close to me when they came by that they would splash the water up over my head and onto the car. Yeah. So there was no room there for me to get any further back. Uh, it was dangerous. I was in a really, really bad spot. So I take the, I take this tire off the one that's blown and I bring the tire that isn't blown <laughs> and I've merely messed up and I, I, I put it on my car. And, uh, you know, I'm so messed up that I put it on backwards. Wow. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Because, you know, I I got a concussion. I'm I'm messed up. I'm big time hurt. You know, Uh, so I put it on my car backwards and I and I tighten the lugs and I take the and I take the car off the jack and I put the jack in the trunk and I'm ready to go and I get in the car. And, uh, and I hit, put her in drive and I start, and it don't going to go anywhere. And I jam the gas, jam the gas down and smoke comes boiling out underneath that tire. Oh no. <laughs> I was like, uh, what's wrong? What's wrong? Right. So I get out of my car again. Now I go back and I open the trunk and I get the jack out again. And I get the lug wrench out and I go and sit down in the same position I was for the nine, ten, I undoed the tire and I start to put the other tire on. And then the freaky stuff starts. Now I'm in the middle, I'm out in the middle of nowhere and the cars are just whipping by me and the water's flying everywhere. And I hear this voice. I can't see. It's raining so hard I can't see anybody. And I look down toward the back of my car, and uh, and I see a figure, a guy, and he's walking on the white line that which I'm sitting on, right, right, right on the edge of the road, and uh, and he he gets a look, but he's saying the same thing, and 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 I'm sitting there, and I'm thinking, my head is all messed up, and I'm thinking, I've been through a hell of a night and a hell of a day here, I go. And I think I probably got a concussion. And what in the world could this be? And uh, and this guy gets within distance, and I can hear him. He's looking straight up in the air. He's not even looking at the road. He's walking that white line. He's looking straight up in the air, and he's he's saying, "Jesus protect me. Jesus protect me. Jesus wow. protect me." And he walks right past me. <laughs> I'm sitting on my butt. He walks right past me between me and these cars and he doesn't touch me and he goes on into the darkness and the rain. He disappears. Jesus protect me. Jesus wow. protect me. <laughs> I put the lug, I put the tire on my car, man. I throw my stuff in the truck. I get in there. I'm totally wet sitting in my car and I'm like, wow, Ron. <laughs> This is a night you ain't never going to forget. And uh, so, Mr. Edwards, that's, that's, my, that's my freaky night. I'll tell you that. That's one I'll never forget. All right. I got to ask you this because I think you said you were, what, 26 years old? 25. 25. And you're, you're wrestling the world champion at age 25 in a used Cadillac. What kind of money did you make that night? Uh, it was a pretty big crowd, too. Uh, that was a pretty good sized building. Uh, I don't remember exactly the payoff, but uh, probably it would have been in the, it might have been uh, two, 250, 300 bucks. Uh, we weren't actually in the main event. There was, there, was a, there was a match after our match. So that was you not know? the main event? No. Wow. No. 
Okay. I can't. Uh, Jack uh, Briscoe and somebody was in the yeah. match after me. Yeah. You know, but uh, and the deal was that Harley Harley was was a world champion. He was in the process. He was about to lose it to Jack Briscoe uh, within the next couple of months. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was his first time through Florida. And uh, they didn't want to put him with Jack Briscoe. Uh, they wanted to get him a win. I was the perfect guy. I was over pretty good, but I wasn't over, you know, enough that I couldn't be beat. And they wanted to take care of Harley. So they put Harley over and, uh, you know, uh, and the rest was history. Me and Harley become great friends. I worked with Harley many, many times after that match, but I never have another trip after that going anywhere that uh it's anything like that experience with the dude walking down the road <laughs> and uh, Jesus protecting him during this uh, monsoon yeah. rainstorm yeah. and putting my tire on backwards and having a concussion and I mean it was a it was a very eventful evening well what a great way to end another stud cast and it was fun walking in your shoes or maybe we should say boots however wet they might have been that night another priceless story and a great way to end another stud cast All right, listen, if you're a fan of Rod's, you can automatically become friends with Ron on two sites on Facebook, Ron Fuller, the Tennessee stud, or author Ron Fuller Welch. Simply like those pages and join the stud. On Twitter, it's Ron Fuller Welch to make contact with Ron on Twitter. Super Studcast number 33, part one, is now available. It is a record almost five hours long It contains half of the last interview ever done with the iconic Bullet Bob Armstrong. It also has four major wrestling stars paying tribute to Bob as well. Terry Funk, Jerry Briscoe, Jim Cornette, and Stan Hansen. I'm pretty sure you would have a lot to say about this because five hours, listen, that's a lot of time. And are you still selling that for only two ninety nine on the Super Studcast? Yes, sir. I'm not going to up the price, no, sir. I mean, uh, that's what the price of the Super Studcast is, no matter how long it is. And uh, you know, yeah, I want to say something because that's just for the guys that are of the eight that are going to be on there. Uh, so, and that's just half of uh, this art, this this interview, the last one that Bob ever did, half the interview that we did. And these four guys, Terry Funk, Jerry Briscoe, Jim Cornette, and Stan Hansen, are, are going to tell fans how they felt about Bob Armstrong. This tribute is just absolutely, it's an awesome, historic, this is a historic event here. Uh, I think that's what uh, Jim Cornette said when, they, when I told him who all was going to be in it. So this is just part one. Part two yeah. is going to have other guys. It's going to have... Uh, a Dutch mm-hmm. Mantel, Kevin Sullivan, uh, uh, Charlie Platt is in it, and uh, Jody Hamilton, the assassin. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, great friends of Bob, and uh, what a tribute. Uh, you know, we did one with my family on a regular stud cast. This one is five times as long, and uh, and it has some of the biggest names in the history of sport. And uh, we're it's, it's, it's really a historic event, and I'm very proud of it. Uh, I don't think that I'll ever do one this long again, but this one is going to be somewhere near that five hours and is worth every minute of it. You can get there by going to tnstud.com. That's tnstud.com and click on super studcast. Also, patreon.com slash 
Studcast. Again, only $2.99. And a reminder, speaking of that, after hearing all of this about Bob Armstrong and the tributes, you may want even more. And no surprise, he is in Super Studcast number five with three hours of stories between Ron and Bob that are absolutely amazing. All right, Brutus, Ron's great man-eating lion story is on Amazon.com slash Brutus or TNStud.com. Also, click Stud Store for the only place you can get an autographed copy. And I got to ask one more thing. Amazingly, compared to your book, there is really a tiger that got released somehow in the Great Smoky Mountains National Park. Is that story still happening? Uh, well, I don't know that it's still verifiable anymore, but uh, they thought there was a tiger there. And, you know, now, they, <laughs> now they're not so sure. Uh, yeah. You know, and, and, and it could be that, you know, if he's a tiger, he's not going to stay around people. He's not going to stay in the city. He's going to head right. for the mountains, and yeah. he's pretty close to it. And they may have let him escape, and he may still be in the mountains, or it may have never been a tiger. But, wow, you know, when that all came up, it was like, man, you know, when you write a book and it's pretty far out there, you know, you wonder how it's thought, you know, this could actually happen. I mean, a, a yeah. lion could yeah. get loose and in a national park and what would happen. And, and then when this tiger thing came up just recently, that there was a tiger in Knoxville that had been spotted. Uh, people from all that, all of the social media people I got have been driving me crazy. They said, Ron, you're the greatest promoter of all time, but this deal with the tiger is beyond. <laughs> you, you probably got accused of something, Ron. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, they accused me. They said, you just made all this. How did you do this, Ron? For real. <laughs> Sell your book, man. <laughs> your, yeah, your book has already been compared to Jaws as far as the viciousness of Brutus, the man-eating lion that is re released in the Smoky Mountains. Again, click Stud Store over at TNStud.com or Amazon.com slash Brutus. It's the book everybody's talking about. All right, and, and by the way, an autographed copy in the Stud Store at TNStud.com. So where are we writing to next week, Ron? Well, we're going to obviously do another today's training. I hope that I'm making my fans the most knowledgeable in all of wrestling uh, with these today's trainings. Uh, and uh, I thought we had a pretty good one today. We're going to have another one uh, to start the next week's program. And uh, we're going to get even closer to that world title match with Terry Funk, obviously. We're going to be returning to the Coliseum again next week. Another spectacular card like this one was this week. And then next week, there's another bounty match. Only this time, the bounty's gone from 5000 to 10000 So we're going to talk about that entire card of September 24th, 1976, next week. Then we're going to look at the TV that promoted it. We'll get the results of that card, and we'll talk about the attendance. And our learning tree question next week is about the last wrestling company I built, USA Wrestling. The question is, why did USA Wrestling end so early? A lot of people don't know much about USA Wrestling because it was a six-month company, but it was filled with great talent. Great question. And uh, those that don't know much about USA Wrestling, uh, this should be fairly interesting for them. And uh, I want to thank everybody, as always, uh, Dave, for saddling up with us again today. And uh, please take care of yourselves out there and others. And uh, may God bless us all. 
I tell you what, when the bubble pops, it's going to make a lot of noise. This is David Summers reminding you that Ron Fuller's Studcast is a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. Please join us again next week. Thanks for joining us today for this historic Studcast. The true story continues next week. So full Nelson, your friends, and point them in our direction for another ride with the Tennessee Stud. This is David Summers saying so long from the Great Smoky Mountains.